And what steak would you like, sir? Bring me your filet mignon. Excellent choice. It's my favorite cut. And how would you like it prepared, sir? Rare. Very good. Uh, medium rare? Not medium rare. Did I say medium? Then, no. No, no, didn't. I didn't. I said rare. Yes, sir. I want it really, really, really rare. Really rare. Really. Cook it for eight seconds and bring it out here. Quite rare, then. The rarest of rare. There will be blood. In fact, don't even cook it. Will not be presented at this time. Shall I just bring you the cow, sir? So that we may bring you this special podcast. Perfect. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass-kickers, shit-kickers, and murderers. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. This <laughs> is just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. There was only one keister on Almost Live. One Conway, one Nye, one Nelson, Wilson, Wyatt, and Stainton. McHale was the only one with a prefix. There were two guppies, Nancy and Joe, but they were married to one another, so that doesn't count. But the show's two different shapers were unconnected, unrelated, and unlike. But Scott Schaefer, unlike the show's original host, Ross Schaefer, was also a key member of the show nearly from the start. A native of Seattle, Scott came to the program with clever ideas, some sharp writing, and actual TV production knowledge. Today, Scott Schaefer runs the award-winning local news business, South King Media, covering the happenings in local towns, from SeaTac to White Center to Burium. He also runs the hyper-local website, I Love Kent. Yep, the very town that became Almost Live's number one punchline. In 2020, Scott was named Seattle Southside Chamber of Commerce's Corporate Citizen of the Year. Yet another example of Almost Live being an unlikely springboard to eventual respectability. Living nowadays in Burien with his wife Teresa, her mom, two nearly grown kids, a couple of chihuahuas, two cats, and a lizard. Let's snag a conversation now with Scott Schaefer. You know, a lot of people might think with a name like Schaefer that maybe I was Ross Schaefer's little brother. That I got that a lot, but I have to clarify oh. there was no nepotism involved. My my Schaefer is spelled S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R, and, and Ross yeah. is spelled uh, wrong, yeah. so there's no relation. <laughs> well, did was it ever a problem? I mean, when you first submitted your uh, – we'll get into that, but when you first submitted your application to work on the show, they say, wait a minute. Is this? Are you pulling our leg? Your name is Schaefer, too? No, I think uh, that uh, producer Dana Dwinell could read, and I made it very clear. I typed it, uh, uh, I think, on an IBM Selectric typewriter, and you could tell that yeah. Schaefer was spelled the correct way. So, man, man, can that Dana Dwinell read? I mean, she really she is what a, a good reader. reader. So you grew up uh, not far from where you live today, although you took uh, a long detour along your life. Where did you where, where did you grow up specifically? Not Burien, but West Seattle. 
grew up in a uh, middle class uh, family in uh, West Seattle. And uh, there's a funny story about when uh, my parents bought a new house around 1970, I think. And we moved to this house and it was uh, the previous owner. And in fact, the previous inhabitant of my bedroom that I took over was uh, a guy named Ryan Stiles, who's a very famous and incredibly talented improv yeah. comedian actor. Well, we'll have a sunny day tomorrow. What do you mean it is tomorrow? Last call. I didn't hear last call. Someone take me home. And so uh, the Schaefers bought the house from the Stiles family, who I believe were moving up to British Columbia for... The father had a job up there. So, so anyway, it was, it's kind of a funny story that I inherited Ryan Stiles' old bedroom, and I was thinking about it the other day. I was thinking maybe it was uh, haunted, in a way, by some humorous uh, ghost, you know, who, who liked to pull pranks and make people feel funnier than they really are. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is. It is kind of a coincidence that you both got that gene somehow. Yeah, and the shag red carpet was you, uh, really did, the topper. Did you ever catch up with him to, and say, hey, you know what? I lived in your house. I did. Many years later when I was producing a pilot that I sold for uh, to CBS with Moffat Lee Productions. The show was called Say What? And uh, we were casting for a couple of sketches. And we wanted kind of a tall, goofy guy. And we got a bunch of headshots. And his came in. And this was before he had been on Whose Line Is It Anyway or any other show that I knew of. Yeah. But I recognized his name and his face. Uh, he had obviously grown up finally. And uh, so we brought him in and I cast him in this sketch. And uh, I jokingly, my first words to him were the address of the house that we purchased from his family. And he said, I knew it was you. And so we caught up and it was just hilarious. It was just, a you know, one of those weird coincidences. You know who uh, moved into the house I grew up in? Larry Swenson. Larry Swenson. Yeah. Should I no. know who that is? No, I don't think so. He's just a, just a plumber. <laughs> okay. Here's something I was thinking about the other day, Scott. With, with Almost Live, there was no – it was a, a comedy show. But unlike most comedy shows, they didn't put the show together and say, okay, now let's hire – a bunch of experienced comedy writers. There was nobody who had comedy writing experience per se that I can think of in the history of that show. They all, they all came from somewhere else, had no previous TV writing experience for the oh, yeah. most part. And, uh, which is part of the remarkable thing about the show, I think, is that people, rather than coming in, uh, already equipped to write comedy, had to kind of learn on the job. Indeed. You know, uh, Ross Schaefer, the original host, uh, was a stand-up comedian, and I believe he had won the Seattle Comedy Competition. Yeah, yeah. And he was then hired at King to uh, create a comedy show, and I, he brought along Jim Sharp, who he had worked with. I believe they had an ad agency in Correct. Tacoma. Yeah, yeah. And they brought it in, and then Dana Twinell, she, I think she was already at King at the time. She, it was assigned to her, and she was the original producer, and... So, you know, Ross and Jim were very funny people and they had, you know, a comedic sense. And so it doesn't take much to just figure out how to turn that into a sketch or a, a monologue or a desk bit 
And of course, you know, it was new for everyone at the time, but we all kind of felt we were, well, we didn't say this publicly, but we were just copying David Letterman. Yeah, it was kind of, it was. I mean, the, there was, you came out, did a monologue. There was a live band. Uh, then there was a, a sketch, maybe. And then they, we sat at a desk and, and guests came out. So it really wasn't a, a reinvention of the wheel, but. No, the only the only difference was it was all locally oriented, and that's what made it work. Is because yep. the city of Seattle and the whole Northwest is is got a lot of funny things from city names like Squim and Puyallup to Big Hair and Kent or Linwood yep. or you know making fun of where I live now, Burien, for God's sake. There's no surer way to identify uh, an interloper or an outsider. Uh, especially like if you see a, a TV, you see a new guy on the TV news, you can tell he's from someplace else because he'll be exposed. Oh, when yes. He's, when he says sequim instead of squam or puliope instead of puliope. Uh, but most everybody from the show, uh, that was on part of the central cast and writing staff was from this area. So they knew of which they wrote and, uh, and parodied for sure. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was probably looking back in my career, that was the most fun I had in any job was the early days of Almost Live when we'd go in and have writers meetings and we'd pitch ideas. And, you know, it was just a lot of camaraderie. And, of yeah. course, there was also a lot of competition. Uh, but it was, you know, it was exciting work, even though we were being paid about, I think I got $130 a week for that when I was first actually hired. Hope you didn't blow that all at once. <laughs> so were you... It, were you, did you always think that you were a funny guy? I mean, were you the class clown or how did you gravitate towards writing comedy and eventually getting a, an actual comedy writing job? Well, I was, I would peg my number one influence, uh, as my dad, Bob Schaefer. He was a really funny guy and, uh, just growing up with a funny dad, uh, big influence. And so I saw that the effect he would have on people is uh by by being the funny guy that coming up with a quick comeback uh no matter what the situation even a, a even a bad situation uh he would you know set people's minds at ease and somehow win people over and i think just by experience being exposed to that constantly uh it made me want to be like him mm, and so I, I would attribute that you know, to my dad, he was a, a, a real estate agent in downtown Seattle, but at heart, he was a boogie-woogie piano player. He met my mom at the Cornish School of the Arts in a piano class, and, uh, you know, he was in World War II, and uh, when he came back, he was on the GI Bill, went to the University of Washington, uh, you know, met the love of his life, got married, and I'm one of four kids, the only boy in the family, the only son. And so my dad, I'd put it number one. Number two, I'd put it J.P. Patches. I watched J.P. Oh, yeah. Patches oh, yeah. and Gertrude. Tell me, I wish Gertrude were here to answer that question. How did I meet Gertrude? <laughs> how did you meet Gertrude? Let yeah, me tell how you how I met I Gertrude. <laughs> Cut it out. Oh, there you are. Yeah, as a matter of fact. Wait a minute. What? I do this oh, God, when God. you walked in. <laughs> And I do that. Oh, See, yeah. you surprised me. Okay. I, I didn't I'll surprise do it again. you. Let's Wait. do it over again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's see. 
How did I meet Gertrude? Now you're supposed to walk in. Okay, good. Now and I can sit down. Sit. Yeah, good. And then they'll cut away. Yeah. And then you say hi, Julius. Or hi, something. Julius. How are you? Hi, or something. I'm fine. I'm just trying to remember. How'd you get here? Well, how did I get see, here? See, now isn't that much better? That's a lot. I like it. See, it's that's why you were the sidekick. Yes, that's it. Yeah. See, you no, couldn't all remember the bit. I couldn't remember okay. the bit. You're yeah. right. And I was honored later to meet them in person a couple of times. Yep. And then uh, the third one would be Mad Magazine. I was a voracious Mad magazine reader. Oh, me too. The magazine that takes on politics, popular culture, nuclear power, advertising, racism, and just about every other foible of modern life. Hey, I, in fact, I bought anything close to Mad Magazine. There was yes, there, were, there, there were other rival magazines, not nearly as funny, but I, I got them anyway. Cracked? Yes, I think Cracked, cracked yes. Remember Cracked? And then later National Lampoon. And then there was one called Sick. Do you remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yes. They got, they got progressively less funny as the, but they were all kind of uh, trying to be Mad Magazine. They did, but there was only one true Mad Magazine that it was, you know, it was, it was so subversive and the illustrations and comics were just amazing. Did you collect comedy records? Were you into that? You know, I, yes, looking, I'm in my office now and I'm looking at the, I got a stack of records on the floor and the one, facing me is hold on i'm gonna get it here it was a record my dad bought steve allen's funny phone call i have that album believe it or not on dot records yes i have it he used to you know call people calling the auto club calling you know call the seattle is on here and a comedian named shelly berman was part of that call Hello. i'm a friend of bob ames um. no bob ames bob ames <laughs> You know him? Yes. Well, now, uh, I'm visiting up here in uh, Seattle, and uh, i uh, he told me to give you a buzz if I ever got into town. <laughs> uh, Cecile? Yes? I, I'm giving you a buzz. It's fantastic. I collected uh, every comedy album. I didn't even, they didn't even have to have any kind of pedigree. I, I didn't even have to have heard of them. If the album was in the comedy section, I would invariably buy it. So I've got yeah. all of them. And I've saved a lot of them. Yeah, I, I'm hard pressed to, to find a good record player around the house here, but, uh, th those things were terribly influential, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know anybody who is even on the periphery of doing comedy that didn't, didn't also listen to a lot of comedy records. A mother telling her daughter about sex. Birds and the bees. Children, stop eating. I know it's the middle of dinner, but I want to tell you about the birds and the bees. Well, gee, Mom, I got studying to do. I do, too. I got to go upstairs in. And boop boop. <laughs> we don't say boop boop. We say no no. Boop boop's a bad word. Your cousin always used that word. I don't like it. I want to talk about the birds and the bees. Now, you know your dad's working tonight. I wish he was here. Because I need him desperately. It takes two. Mother bird and the father bird. How do birds do it? Very fast. And high in the air. Idiot. 
Sometimes in trees, smart aleck. Um, so you grow, you're growing up. You went to high school, uh, West Seattle High School? Yeah, West Seattle High School. Okay. Uh, I was a, uh, the editor of the high school newspaper. I was really into journalism at the time. And, uh, and it was, you know, uh, we had a terrible football team and, uh, occasionally I'd have to report on how bad they were. And now as the editor, you have to write editorials too. Did you, uh, did you get, uh, upbraided for some of your controversial editorial writing? Oh, yes. Uh, I didn't write editorials per se, but I did write a humor column called Man Bites Dog, uh, that was kind of handed down to me from another humor writer at the high school after he graduated. I took over his column and, you know, I would, publish you know once a week something a collection of funny things going on at the school and so that was you know that was good exercise uh for pre-sketch writing is to is to start yeah, writing yeah, you know yeah. little short blurbs that have a beginning middle and ending well getting back to your dad for a minute while i'm thinking of it uh you said that he was a he played boogie woogie music too did he ever have aspirations of pursuing music as a career instead of instead of uh, what did you say he was an insurance man no he was a real estate real broker estate guy in, that's right yeah. uh, for yeah. business real estate commercial real estate in downtown seattle and yes he did he actually recorded an album his uh his you know his artistic name was spider web because his <laughs> fingers would spread so wide uh they would call them spider webs and he loved to play classic boogie woogie piano uh fats waller and yeah. and duke ellington inspired and and he and his buddies recorded an album in downtown seattle there used to be places you could go to to record a vinyl album you have do you have a recording i do yes That's your old man, huh? That's him. That's so cool to have that. Yeah, I I really had a great family life. I'm really lucky. Did really he, lucky. Did he encourage you to play uh, music too? Oh, yeah. You know, my parents were kind of disappointed that I didn't go into, uh, you know, uh, do very well with my piano classes. I found it kind of boring. Uh, and I, my dad you know, wanted me to get into real estate. He wanted me to, you know, come down and work with him. And, and I said, Dad, I'm working on a couple of stories now I got to do with, you know, the newspaper. So, and then, you know, uh, kind of switched gears after a couple of years of community college, discovered, you know, film and television. And I was really inspired by Saturday Night Live. And I thought, boy, yeah. this is where, this is where it's at. This is what I want to do. I really felt that that was my true calling. So where did you go to community college? I went to Highline Community College, worked on the Thunderword, uh, the school newspaper there. And, uh, I think I did some humor columns, but I was also uh, a photographer at the time and I would cover sports and I worked for, uh, at the West Seattle Herald. I was the youngest sports editor in the history of the West Seattle Herald when I was 17 years old. I took over. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. The highlight of my life, one of them, uh, and there aren't many, uh, was to be the commencement speaker one year for the graduating class of Highline Community College. Well, and, uh, uh... I- 
And so I thought this would be funny, Scott. I, I get up, you know, you got to wear the, the whole gown and all this stuff, and you're wearing the mortarboard hat. And they introduced me. Pretty big crowd, too. They had it at the uh, Tacoma Convention Center in a big mm-hmm. room there. And uh, so I get up, I'm introduced, and I get up and I go, Greetings to you graduates. As you move on in your life and find yourselves at various times being forced to listen to long, dull speeches that go on and on, I hope you will think back to my speech today and remember that it was not one of them. Goodbye and good luck. <laughs> and then I turned and as if to go sit down and then they, you know, they waved me back. It, it went over uh, poorly, but uh, they, uh, I didn't tell any of the, you know, the important professors and people there that I was going to do that. So they thought that they were getting ripped off initially when it was just part of my hilarious and inspiring speech. Well, it's, it's funny to look back at it and realize that. And, you know, surprises in comedy are always uh, a good element. I'm surprised when anything lands. Uh, so you, um, you, you went to community college. Did you go, uh, onto, uh, another level of college or did you? Yeah. Uh, I got my uh, AA degree at Highline and then I decided, uh, to switch my career from journalism to film and television and media. So I went to, uh, ended up getting my Bachelor of Arts at Eastern Washington University. Oh, yeah. Eastern Washington University was founded in 1882 by a $10,000 grant from expressman Benjamin Pierce Cheney, originally known as Benjamin P. Cheney Academy, to honor its founder. Congratulations to the graduates of Eastern Washington University. Hats off to you for a fine job of fulfilling your dreams, goals, and aspirations. Uh, No, I never, I really never thought about them as an uh, an alternative for myself, because I was also interested in that stuff, but I didn't know that Eastern had a program like that. Yeah, you know, I was investigating, researching uh, for a while what good uh, universities to finish my degree at, and I'm, I knew I wanted to get somewhere that had a TV studio where I could actually get hands-on experience. And I looked into the UW, and I thought theirs was just too academic, too much classroom work. And then uh, Wazoo, I, I don't think I could afford it. I was very poor and broke at the time. I was truly a struggling college student. You, so, had, enough, you had enough gas to get to uh, Cheney, but not enough to get to Pullman. Not enough to make it back, really. To make it back, oh, yeah. So. It's a one-way ticket, four-and-a-half-hour drive, as I recall, in my uh, crappy little Toyota Celica. You know, it was a great, great place to go to school because that's all you could do there. There was really nothing else. There was, you know, maybe a bar in the showies. There was a bar or two, but you know, nobody could afford to go out. So we just kind of lived and worked at the, at the studio at the college campus. And so there was a radio station. I did a morning radio show playing only the best music in the world. This is your number one. Radio station. I tried to be funny on the radio, and then uh, we would do, you know, uh, go to our classes, and then at, at late afternoon into the evening, we'd produce shows. And so, you know, we, I was there probably 
12 hours a day. You have to be, uh, and you're the winner of three National Emmy Awards. Aren't You're probably the most distinguished graduate from that program, aren't you? Oh, I don't think I'm the most distinguished. I think, you know, one of my classmates was uh, Colin Coward, from, uh, from who's on ESPN now. He's a huge name and he makes millions of dollars a year yeah no actually he's over on fox now is he really yeah it's the herd wherever you may be and however you may be listening iHeartRadio, fox sports radio and fs1 mark few coach of the gonzaga bulldog my buddy for a long time will be joining us today always makes fun of the show he goes nice you could squeeze a little college basketball into your football show so <laughs> what the heck <laughs> i know i've been emailing the wrong email address no wonder he's not responding and That's that right. And then I just want to give a shout out to uh, another great classmate of mine, a, a successful TV and screenwriter named Tim Kelleher. Oh, yeah. We're at a, a table read and I was just looking across the table and here you have Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, Alan Arkin, Kim Basinger. And I'm going, I'm looking at four Oscar winners in front of me at the table, like I and I had chills. I mean, even as I talk to you right now, I still kind of get chills. So unbelievable. I mean, it's it's beyond anything you could ever wish for, and I just feel so grateful that we have this cast. I used to see Tim Kelleher's name pop up all the time on 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 the credits of various shows. So he's, yeah. he, is he still at it? He is. He's still working. He moved to Ashland. So I th- don't think he's far from you. Uh, and, and he's, he's still probably, writing. He, he's probably trying to, uh, uh, punch up some of those Shakespeare plays there in Ashland. Yeah. They need help. That yeah. Shakespeare yeah, guy. They got, they got to be updated. They're, yeah, and they're getting a little the, long in the tooth. <laughs> they are. Yeah. So, uh, we had a couple of great professors. I just want to honor them that passed away by now. Dr. David Terwishi. He was a real good mentor to us young, struggling media students, and then the mean old infamous Dr. Howard Hoff, who a lot of Seattle uh, media people took at Eastern. Uh, he was a real character, uh, just a kaji old man who would just, he wasn't afraid to t- tell you in class, in front of everyone, as you were doing a presentation in your ill-fitting suit, Schaefer, you're stupid, sit down! He would just really berate it. <laughs> I love it, I love it. I just got word that another of your uh, professors passed away uh, during listening to this uh, podcast. So uh, they're, <laughs> they're pretty much, they're pretty much all gone now. Yes. You so hear a how- spinning sound. That's them rolling over in their graves right now. <laughs> so Scott, so then you graduate. Now what happens? Well, you know, I graduated. I had a great reel that I built through my time at Eastern. Uh, I had a demo reel on three quarter inch tape and I, I sent it off, even though it cost me, I think, $32 per tape to send out. Those I, were expensive. I also had a three-quarter inch demo tape. Unfortunately, uh, my three-quarter inch tape was measured lengthwise. So that's all, it wasn't very yes. long, is what I'm saying. Yeah. It was very, very short. Very I, short. I, I get so it. did that help you get a gig? No, it didn't. You know, so I came back to Seattle because I was done in Cheney and I was getting kind of Tired of, you know, being the graduate, hanging out still. It didn't really feel right. And so came back to Seattle. I had, you know, my family here and a girlfriend. And and so came back here and submitted my resume and my demo reel to all the stations. You know, King, Cairo, Como. Crack, Cuckoo, Kaka, KFC. KCPQ, KSTW. I thought for sure I would get a, a bidding war <laughs> for my services, but nobody huh. bit. And and so then kind of got a little frustrated. I went back to work uh, 
at a job that I'd used, that I'd done to help me get it through college in a boiler room at a, a weekly sporting newspaper called Fishing and Hunting News. I was a phone salesman in a boiler room on East Lake Avenue here in Seattle. You have to be closing all the time and be aggressive. Learn how to push. Why would you leave that gig? Welcome to the new American dream. <laughs> so I came back and I did that. The good news was uh, we worked on commission and a lot of the top salespeople there were making about 20 to $25 an hour, which for, you know, the mid eighties was pretty good. Yeah, still pretty good, actually. So then I, I had a couple of old friends that I reconnected with. Uh, and one of them was a guy named Pat Robinson and Pat and I thought that we'd watched almost live and we thought, wow, this show could need some, could use some help. And so we are big fans of SNL and we would, you know, kind of study the sketches and, and maybe he had a VHS player that he'd record the show and we'd watch him. Oh, cheeseburger, one Pepsi. Cheeseburger. Cheeseburger, 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 four Pepsi, two cheap. Cheeseburger, 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 two Pepsi, one cheap. So we started writing sketches and I was like the typist and, and he and I came up with a couple of ideas and we submitted scripts to Dana Dwinnell at King TV. And she, lo and behold, I couldn't believe it. After about three or four submissions, she bought one of them. Really? Which, uh, we called total control. It was about a, a magical TV remote control that could control people. I remember what a twist. I remember that bit so well. Uh, it was. John Keister had this uh, recurring bit called Assignment Danger, and I think Total Control was one of those assignments. And, That's and, right. And as you just said, the premise of it is that what if you could control real life as you can control a TV set? So you could make people That's go right. backwards, you could you could make them go fast or go backwards fast or or whatever or pause them. Uh, that kind yes, of, a li- almost a little bit of a you know Twilight Zone ish aspect to it, but. Not really so absurd uh, today, perhaps, to think that way. But that was an incredibly, uh, to my mind, inventive sketch for its time. This would have been, yes. what, the mid-'80s? Yeah, that would have been 85, yeah. fall of 85 that got produced. And I ended up working for free on the production of it. I I let them know, uh, you know, I think Dana may have called me and told me we're going to buy this sketch for $50, and so uh, I said, well, do you need help uh, in the production? I've got, you know, I just graduated from college. I know how to set up cables and audio and lights and I'll do whatever you guys need. I'll get you coffee. And she said, sure. And so she connected me with their DP uh, editor at the time, Mike Boydston, yep. who I really yep. credit for making total control work. He's the guy that came up with the idea of having Keister walk backwards through Northgate Mall and then reversing the footage so it looks like he's the only one walking forward. Yeah. Everyone else is moving backwards. Brilliant. It, it really was at the, at that time and, and at this time, for that matter. Total, total control. control. I've never seen the Total Control brand oh, before. Well, I think this is one of the, the new units that's just coming in. And, and, well, I can tell by looking at it that it's uh, got a lot of options. Well, so probably a couple hundred dollars more. What's this thing but, right here? What's hmm? this slow motion? Oh, and what is that? Okay. Oh, gee, that's really interesting. That's yeah. A, let me try this. What's this fast forward? What's that? Okay. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. What's this? Is There's a pause button. Okay. What does that do? Okay, that's another special. 
Well, you know something else, Pat? You're you're tied into this too because uh, I think I sent you the screenshot of a an old piece of paper from the 1986 Northwest Emmy Awards. Yep. And total total control won an Emmy, and you know what it beat? No. It beat it beat your beloved Sluggy sketch. Oh man, what a ripoff! What a rip. Well, you know, looking back, I think Sluggy should have won. Well, you know what? I'm going to have that uh, investigated for fraud. Yeah, I believe there is fraud, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, I think we should maybe storm the Natus headquarters. Yes. I think I think I'm going to make that happen as soon as we wrap it up here. Uh, Sounds you know, good. but ri- writing that sketch as you did, uh, this is the thing that uh, so many people uh, who otherwise are inventive writers never quite get. You can come up with this wonderfully creative idea, but if you ha- haven't also stopped to think, how much would this cost to do or how would I pull it off? It might be a fine idea, but is it technically possible to do it? Uh, so I'm assuming as part of your writing process, process, you also thought of how this total control thing would work, how you would get people to go fast and slow and, and pause and all that sort of thing. Oh yeah. yeah. You, you got to think that way. I, I, that was something we would see a lot of sketches come in through the years at Almost Live. The ideas weren't bad, but the execution would have been impossible because we didn't have a budget to speak of. So go right. sell it to SNL. Maybe they'll buy it. Yeah. Well, you know, that was the joy of working on Almost Live in the early days was, you know, you would pitch an idea and you think, well, how can we pull this off? And then you bring in Boydston and he's got a, you know, he's got a cinematographer's eye and he's just a brilliant shooter and editor. And he's always able to storyboard in his mind. And, and so you would brainstorm and next thing you know, you're out shooting it and it's working. Yeah. And so yeah, he, uh, he, he is, that was a lot of, yeah, fun. it was just a remarkable confluence of really talented people that somehow all lined up together at a point in time. Amazing when you think about it. Yeah, and we really had no idea at the time that, you know, it was such a big, cool thing. It was just, you know, it was kind of a hassle. You weren't being paid enough. You didn't have to be there all day, and you have to go out on shoots. And, you know, how much Thai food can you bother to eat with Mike Boydstone? Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, it's dangerous to try and find out the answer to that, for sure. <laughs> yes. It's a gas! So you got that one sketch sold. You even won an Emmy for it, as you just said. Uh so was that was that an easy entree to becoming a regular staff member after that? Well, I wouldn't say it was easy because I did work for free on multiple shoots for about three months. And then I think at the beginning of uh, January of 86, Dana got a budget increase and she was able to bring me on as a writer part time. Uh, the same week that uh, Joe Guppy and a guy named Bill Nye got hired mm. and almost live. And we were all paid the same, I think 130 a week, or at least that, what, uh, that's what I was made to believe. So I still had to keep my nighttime job. And I remember Bill and I was still working at Boeing and Joe was, I think, doing improv. Hmm. It, and so, you, you know, we all worked 130 as a week. Hard huh? as we yeah. could. Yeah, 130. I, I don't want to cause trouble, but Nye told me he was making 2,500 a week at the time. What? Yeah, that's, I don't know. You, you have to work that out with him. It's, it's history now. That's all I know. It is history. So, so now you're full time and you're really getting up to speed, writing a lot of stuff. Uh, what other, what other pieces, if you can remember, were you really happy with? 
Well, there was another one that Pat Robinson and I came up with called, we called it the psychic lens. And that was basically a telephoto, a telephoto lens on a camera that could read people's minds. So the idea was to go out and, and shoot footage of people walking on a public street, say in, you know, Fifth and Pine in downtown Seattle. And then the psychic lens would magically you know, transcode their thoughts into the voices of what they're really thinking. <laughs> so, you know what? You, uh, you mentioned Steve Allen a, a little while ago, and, and I, too, was influenced by him. A lot of people were, but he used to do a bit, uh, perhaps a precursor to yours, where he would just put the camera. He They didn't have portable cameras then, so they'd just wheel a studio camera out onto the street just outside the studio, and he yes. would just... He just muse on what people might be thinking or saying to each other as they walked right by the studio there. I just thought it was yes. terribly hilarious, uh, and, and it showed what a great ad-libber he was. People didn't know they were on. You know, let's take a look at this. Hollywood and fire. And let's see what these folks are doing. This guy's trying to see if they have enough money so he can buy himself a shirt. I think. <laughs> All that's left of a Santa Claus suit from Christmas, whatever. Oh, it's fuzz time, folks. <laughs> Little does he know his bike has just been stolen, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but that that idea of uh, putting thoughts or words into other people's heads uh, became kind of a trademark thing of yours through the year. Yeah, it was uh, on Almost Live. We called it Street Talk. And it became a, a good recurring signature bit of mine. I was the guy behind it. I, and so I'd go out with Boydston and we'd shoot for, you know, six or eight hours. And I'd come back and review all the tapes and kind of do a, a, a cut down reel of the best clips and then start writing jokes and then bring in the other writers and we jam on ideas. And before you know it, we're, you know, recording voices in a, in, I don't know if you remember the old edit base. Oh yeah. In the, yeah. in the basement of King, yeah. we'd close a door in this tiny little room and Boydston would record our voices. And, you know, uh, it was mostly all, uh, all the writers doing the voices. Now, so, how did you get around the problem of the female voices or did you do those too? Uh, unfortunately, I did a, a lot of falsetto voices. <laughs> oh, I, please don't, how do you like my hat? Please don't step on my foot. You may remember some of those I, great moments. I do now that you mention it. Yeah. So there, that shows another influence. Monty Python yes. was another big influence. Why are you always on about women, Stan? I want to be one. What? I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. Well, why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies. Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus going to just take? You're going to keep it in a box? They, uh, they, they, <laughs> I don't know why that resonates as so funny. And perhaps it's considered politically incorrect nowadays. But that idea of men... I mean, even in Shakespeare's day, men played female parts, and yes, not for comedic and, purposes necessarily either. I gotta give another shout out to Bob Newman, who played Gertrude. Gertrude was a right. huge influence. La, 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 la. 
Listen, Gertrude. Oh, hi, Julius. How are you? And everyone knew it was a man, and 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 but he, he just committed to it. Like you, Pat, when you do a bit, you just commit to it, and that's what makes great comedy actors and comedians so good is committing to it. Like Will Ferrell, he'll come out in yeah. a green speedo and and not even acknowledge it, yeah. and and not be embarrassed by it. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't give a damn. It's like. You know, and that's what makes it so funny. I love it. I love it. Drew, it's bad enough that she wore shorts. But for the love of God, why are those shorts so short? Why are long pants long? Why are bushes bushy? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, if we're going to get in that area, we're going to be here all day. You know, I, I, am I missing something? Am I missing something? Do you not want me to be patriotic? <clears throat> no, Dale, it's just that those shorts don't even look comfortable. Okay, I mean, we can see your bulge. Okay, first of all, they're extremely comfortable. Uh, and second of all, at this point in your life, if you haven't seen a bulge, well, I just feel sorry for you. So Scott, you're 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 happy as a clam. I think you get married during that time at Almost Live, and everything's going fine. And then uh, the the star of the show, Ross Schaefer, gets an offer. Yeah, well, you know that was uh, in April of 1988, and I didn't get married until a year later. Ah. And I just want to also acknowledge my lovely wife, Teresa. been my best audience since i met her in uh i think the fall of 1987 and i gotta interject here a quick story uh one of our best dates in the early days we went to a halloween party i think it was at, at somebody's house you may know his name is pat cashman oh, yeah. he used to have the best halloween parties thank you so she dressed up as a zebra and i had that i bought at a thrift store an old Seattle animal control uh, uniform jacket. And so I had a zebra on a leash, and she was incredibly well made up. It took her hours to get the makeup on. And so I think somewhere around the house I have a color photo of that zebra outfit. Yes, and, and we have a photo Talk of about Polaroid. A film. Yeah, I could. That we took yeah. in your uh, picture yourself dead coffin that you had yes, in one of your yeah. many rooms. Yeah, we uh, they, we had we would have these uh, Halloween parties at my house. Uh, Steve Wilson was uh, another member of the Almost Live show, and he he would kind of cold throw the parties with us, uh, and uh, we we would get we would do these animatronic things, very influenced by going to Disneyland too, where they had yes. you know the the presidents. Uh, the Hall of Presidents, I think they called it, and they would all move around and they would talk and stuff. So we, yeah. we would, I saw these big animatronic gorillas or something in front of a car wash. I know it was the brown bear car wash. So they animated a brown bear in front of the car washes. So I investigated it a bit and I found out you could rent those things. So we, <laughs> so we would rent like two or three of them. We wouldn't have bear outfits on them. We'd put different kinds of things on them, monster outfits or whatever. So every room in our house had a different kind of exhibit. One might be called the Deli of Doom, and there would be yes. a proprietor around the around the, this display case where you could get, uh, you know, lady fingers that were actual fingers and, and, and stuff like that. It's pretty 
pretty stupid stuff, but people ate it up and they loved it. Oh, I got to tell you right here, Pat, you're, that party that you threw in 87 was one of the best parties I'd ever been to. And I'll never forget the, uh, the butcher shop, the, the deli of doom where, uh, pieces of meat would kind of move and you yeah. hear a voice <laughs> as if the meat was talking. It was brilliant. <laughs> well, maybe not. And sometimes just to, you know, to cut corners, we'd do very simple exhibits. One I remember was out in my front yard. I kind of dug up some earth and there was some disturbed area of ground. And then I festooned the top of that with uh, various hats. There'd be cowboy hats, ball caps, that kind of stuff. Just the hat was in the ground. And then a sign in front of it that said, Danger, Quicksand. Wait, that's quicksand. I don't like this. Oh! A low-tech okay. bit, but it, it, it looked kind of funny. It worked. Yeah, it worked okay. It's comedy. So anyway, I, I know if I got off on a tangent there, I was getting, let me get back to when Ross got the gig in LA. Uh, it was April of 88. Ross, of course, was very ambitious. He had a daytime, uh, talk radio show on, I think it was on KJR. He was doing extremely well. He had all these ads that he was appearing in and getting a lot of sponsorship money. I think he was driving a Ferrari at that time. He had an agent and his agent uh, got his taped in the right hands at a new network called Fox Broadcasting, who was trying to revive the late show, their late night TV offering that Joan Rivers had originally hosted. First of all, it is Columbus Day and everything is closed except my mouth. And she left. And then a comedian no one had ever heard of named Arsenio Hall took it over. And on K-Big, they talked about this store in Yugoslavia. And uh, they they have a store there run by psychics. And this is interesting. They tell the customers, before you come in, think about what you want. And when you walk in, we will tell you as you're walking in what it is you want before you speak. <laughs> I guess that's cool. I don't know. It could be an interesting concept. It could be embarrassing, too, if you walk in the guy says, deodorant. He left, and they tried to revive it one more time, and Ross got the gig along with another comedian named John Mulrooney from the East Coast. Yeah. And so originally it was kind of a competition. Ross would host uh, the show three nights a week, and then Mulrooney two nights, and they'd alternate the next week. So I was part of Ross's team, Jim Sharp and myself. We came down, and we, you know, what Mulrooney and his team didn't know, and the people at Fox, for that matter, is that. We had done three years of Almost Live, and we had, you know, this book, basically, of sketches that we could just repurpose uh, on a national level and reshoot in L.A., and they thought we were just brilliant. How are you coming up with these great ideas? Yeah. Where, are you, where are these coming from? You guys are brilliant. Where, did you have any compunction about leaving town and heading to L.A., or were you eager to do it? Oh, I was eager to do it. You know, uh, there was... Almost Live was, you know, a great place to work, but uh, it it was, you know, like any writer's room, it was very competitive. And for a while, uh, one of the gags, if you were pitching a joke and it and it didn't get a reaction, somebody would say failure. <laughs> and so after a while, that kind of got old. And then I remember Joe Guppy kind of redirected everyone. And, 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 and this was, I really credit Joe for this. Uh, instead of saying failure, why don't we say success when you do something that works? And so... We did switch the mindset of the writer's room, and I think that changed how the show was done. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
that uh, that word that success thing became kind of a kind of a mantra uh, that it did that you still use all the time. Right? Oh yes, no, uh, I still use positive affirmations based on my knowledge of how that worked for everybody there. But another thing we were, we would all talk about is I'm going national. I'm going to go national. We're going to get out of this dead end town. We would joke, even though we all loved living and working here, we all wanted to go national. And so Ross was the first to go national. And I was so lucky that he and Jim Sharp chose me to go with him. And so, you know, one day we're here in Seattle doing, you know, almost live. And then, you know, next day I'm on an airplane flying into LAX and drivers are driving us to the Hollywood Hilton. And, and then a driver drives us onto the Fox lot. And suddenly we're in this multi-million dollar studio stage with, you know, Joan Rivers old dressing room and this whole floor dedicated to writers. And it's, it was just, I got to tell you, it was just a whirlwind. Yeah, boy, I can imagine must have been amazing and and i'll never never forget looking out the window in uh ross took over joan's office and it had this beautiful view of the hollywood sign and i remember looking at that hollywood sign going i can't believe i'm actually working in hollywood I went from, at the time, I was also associate producer of Almost Live, which meant I was the guy that got all the props and arranged for locations. And I was making, I think, 460 a week. So I went from 460 a week to making, I think it was at least 2000 or $2,500 a week. And, and I was suddenly in the Director's Guild. Be careful. In Hollywood. In Hollywood. I couldn't believe it. Isn't that great? And the best part is that you were so thrilled about it you weren't blasé about it it was it's it's kind of weird to think hey i'm a kid from west seattle this can't be happening to me but here i am yeah it was a thrill and i you know and, and we kind of absorbed some of the writers from Mulrooney's show a guy named hal spear and then I brought my old friend Tim Kelleher and got him into Hollywood uh, during that time, and he worked on the show as a writer. And there's a guy named Fred Wolf, who's now a, a director. He worked at Saturday Night Live, and Robert Kuhn, and all sorts of other incredibly far more talented writers than I. And it was just a pleasure to be able to work, you know, in the Hollywood system at this new network, doing a show every single night. This wasn't just once a week. This was, you know, every night. And so and you got, it was. And you got a lot of famous people coming and going. Yeah. Uh, as guests. That must have been pretty heady, too. Yeah. You know, I, I would remember sitting in the green room because I wanted some free food. You know, we didn't really have time to get meals. And so there was always food coming into the green room and you'd sit there and all of a sudden here comes Dick Van Patten or uh, there's James Brown. And, <laughs> and then Liz Taylor comes in the room. And, On your knees. Or Michael Jackson. So you're doing that, but that show doesn't last very long. It's like six months, and now you're, yeah, now you're out of a gig. Six months, 
six months and and then you know uh then it get canceled and that's that was our first my first experience with a cancellation and you know I was pretty uh had a big impact on everyone and so then you know the great thing about working uh in television in Hollywood is you make a lot of friends and you work with a, a good group of people and Somewhere, somewhere in that group, somebody's going to find something else and they may hopefully invite you to come work with them because they liked yeah. you and they were comfortable. And so there's a, a secret to that is don't burn your bridges. Don't ever burn bridges. Even if you work with the, the worst a-hole in the world. Unless you happen to be a professional bridge burner and then. So where did you go right after that, Scott? Well, right after the Late Show, uh, I ended up going to uh, a hidden camera show on Fox called Totally Hidden Video, which mm-hmm. was basically a redoing of Candid Camera. And then I that, worked. That is on, a concept uh, that never goes away. By the way, I was just watching watching one today with a, a, a professional basketball player. He's the host of it. It's it's a prank show. So pe- people love yes. those. They're not too expensive to produce, and and it, it it's uh, it, it's fun. They obviously work, or they wouldn't keep making them. So, so there was right. totally so there's a lot of them on totally hidden video, and then and then what? And then I worked at uh, uh, Fox On Air Promotions. Somehow they found out I was looking for work and recruited me. So I did promos for shows like uh, the Tracy Ullman Show oh. or Married with Children or. Uh, Let's see, what else was there? There was a couple of other shows. So, you know, you'd get a tape, a preview tape or a live uncut version from uh, a shoot uh, and you'd have to turn it into a 30, a 60 and a 90 second promo. And that was good exercise in, in learning how to yeah. break down a, a story in and retelling it in a tease that lasts, you know, 30 seconds, sometimes as short as 10 seconds. I remember the It's Gary Chandling show was another one that I did promos for. And so I, I actually got to shoot with Gary and his team. And, you know, we did this a bunch of promos and, you know, it was pretty exciting. Tonight on It's Gary Chandling show, the Sherlockers need a sound. Why don't I take care of Grant for a couple of days? So why don't they ask Gary? The one time he took care of our plants, they died. Yeah, but they were old. Maybe it was their time to go. <laughs> Can Gary return their son in one piece? It's Gary Shadling's show tonight on Fox. Then you came up with some shows of your own, including one that you were kind enough to let me kind of peek in at called Say What? Yes. You, you, you'd sold it to CBS. Yes, through Moffat Lee Productions, the people that did not necessarily the news, John Moffat and Pat yeah. Lee. And so, uh, we sold that to CBS. We did, we, we got a pilot plus two. We did three episodes. And in fact, at one time we flew you down to, uh, audition yeah. as host, but, uh, ultimately, uh, a young rising comedian named Bill Maher got the gig as the host. That bastard. New rule. If your website makes me choose a country from your drop down list, put the United States on top. <laughs> Don't. Don't make us all scroll through the hundred countries even Rick Steves couldn't give a shit about. And that show 
was basically <laughs> basically <laughs> uh it combined my word on the street street talk uh of dubbing voices over real footage now this is where we take our cameras out in the street somewhere in los angeles and shoot people on the streets with our cameras then we bring the film back take the words out of their mouths and put our own in um um i'm wearing a swimsuit that's much too small for me well, of course, you know, I, I, while I would have loved to have been the host of a show, uh, like that in, in the big time, as they say, uh, it really wasn't, uh, in my wheelhouse to move to LA. I, it really wasn't something I wanted to do. So it turned out better for me because you would send me a bunch of tape that you had shot around LA and in various places, uh, construction sites and shopping malls and what have you. And then you just sent it to me, and then I'd sit in my little editing room after uh, my work was done for the day at King. I'd be there all night long just looking at these tapes, trying to come up with premises and uh, little comedic moments from these tapes. It was real fun, and I didn't have to I didn't have to move anywhere to do it. It was great. That's all I have to say about that. You were, you know, you were right up there talent-wise with, uh, I always thought of you as the next Phil Hartman. Well, that's very kind of you. And Don't tell I, your I, wife that, I, though. The reason I paused for a moment, I wanted to make sure all of this was being recorded. <laughs> and yes, I got it. Okay, good, good. So you did that for a while. As you said, that only lasted three shows, but there's always something else coming, and you kept working on it. Uh, Penn & Teller, I just saw a piece uh, about Penn & Teller yesterday. They're part of this this new enterprise called the Masters Series or something like that. It, it's like going to school. Yeah. To learn how to be a director, right. or in Penn and Teller's case, how to do magic. Yes, I think it's called master class. That's it, master class. Thank you. And no matter what level you are at magic, we got stuff here for you. Learning basic principles of magic, like learning chords on a guitar. Once you know a few simple principles, you can build your whole magic routine. And if you're smart enough to work silently, it brings out a huge amount of wonder. But you, you have a Penn and Teller connection too. Yeah, I became a field director slash interviewer for the Penn and Teller bullshit show on Showtime for a couple of years. I think I've seen it on the Disney Channel too. And, uh, that was after I'd come back to Seattle. That was in the, you know, mid 2007, maybe 2008. Mm. Hi, I'm Penn and this is my partner Teller. You may have heard vaccination causes autism in one out of 110 children. Total bullshit. It doesn't. Before that, uh, I done, you know, I worked on the Arsenio Hall show for a while and a couple of other shows, America's Funniest People. I was a field director on that. We'd go out and try to find funny people in the, throughout the U.S. So it's a lot of traveling. And then, uh, in, I think it was February of 94, Bill Nye called me up and said, Hey, Scottsu. Because that was my nickname, Skatsu. And so he, Skatsu, what are you doing? And the Northridge earthquake had just hit maybe a week or so before. And then we'd been through the Rodney King riots. And, and we felt that life wasn't uh, very good in Los Angeles anymore, Yeah, uh, Teresa and I. And so uh, he said, would you come back to Seattle to work on my new sh- TV show, Bill Nye the Science Guy? Bill Nye the Science Guy. Of course, I jumped at it, and, and it was so great to be able to move back in 94 
and I was senior writer on the Nye Show for three years, and, you know, that was another great experience working with people I used to work with on Almost Live and then a lot of new people. And, you know, it was a wonderful show because not only were we making people laugh, we were educating kids at the same time. And yeah. And that show was uh, showered with uh, awards, uh, Emmys for the industry, but also from educators and stuff. It was it, it was a springboard for a lot of people's careers and uh, is a show that kids are still heavily influenced by today. Oh, yes. And, you know, the thrill of it, uh, beating Mr. Rogers or Sesame Street in the national Emmys was was not to, not to be laughed at because these are shows, you know, had so much respect and they were legendary shows. And all of a sudden, this upstart Bill Nye guy comes down from... Seattle and beats them? What? Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, Scott Shaver has just talked about beating Mr. Rogers. Yes. That's the kind of person Scott Schaefer is. Yeah, you don't want to see his sweater after I'm done with him. <laughs> uh, Scott, um, so you back, you're in back in town and you did that work on the night show and all that. But now you're involved with an enterprise that takes you back to what you started out loving the most, journalism. That's tell us, right. Tell us what you're up to. Well, you know, uh, I've had a great career, great life. And, uh, you know, we, I, we have two kids and there was a time in, uh, must have been 2007 that I was looking for things to do online on Google and I couldn't find any events in the Burien area for my kids, for the family to do. And so I thought, Hey, you know, there's these other new websites. They call them local blogs. There's the West Seattle blog. There's Capitol Hill. There's, there was one in the central district and one in Ballard. And I thought Burien could use a blog. And so I just started it as a hobby. I didn't think much of it. The name Burien blog was taken. So I, I came up with a nickname for Burien that was based on a local ice cream shop called the B-Town Scoop. I don't, I registered the name B-Town Blog and it was just a hobby. You know, I didn't think I'd yeah. pursue it. And so, you know, about six months after I started it, I started getting phone calls. Uh, how much does it cost? To, or let me do that voice again. How much does it cost to advertise? <laughs> oh, that's that wealthy dowager that lives on three, yes, three point. Only, yeah. The only female voice I can do for some reason. And so. <laughs> And then uh, a guy named Larry Kaufman, who you know, of course, yeah, from Marketing yeah. Magazine. I sure. had coffee with him, and I said, Larry, I, I need your advice. I got all these websites. I was doing a comedy website and a couple of other hobby websites. And I said, which one of these do you think I should pursue? Because, you know, there, uh, suddenly the freelance market in Seattle had imploded after the recession of 2007, 2008. So there was really not much going on. So I could really pursue one of these. And so Larry immediately said, oh, you got to do the local websites. That's going to be huge. And so I took his advice. I'm, I'm sitting in the very office that he advised us to to rent. And we've been here doing this successfully for over 13 years. And it wow. grew from uh, one local website to seven now. We we cover an area from White Center to Kent, and we try not to make big hair jokes, but nope. there's, you know, there's still a little comedy, but, you know, uh, it's like riding a bicycle doing journalism. It's, you know, it's who, what, where, when, why, how, and then, you know, I like to throw in, hmm, like what's the, what's, what's an yep. interesting angle That's, I could take on it. So one of my, <laughs> one of my stops along the way was being, uh, doing TV weather, uh, and, uh, and I thought I my I thought my calling was to try and be Mr. Funny Guy doing the weather. 
And, and then at some point I realized, you know what? Uh, people can go someplace else for comedy. When they tune in to get the weather, they want to know the weather. If you're a farmer, you need to know what, what, what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, is it going to rain or is it going to snow or what? Uh, it took me a while to get that through my head, but you're right. People, you can put some comedy in there, but people need their information. And, and, and uh, yeah. there are so few newspapers anymore that there's a dearth of information out there at the local level and in the neighborhood level that, that people just crave. And you found that yeah. niche and it sounds like you're doing great. It was, it's an accidental new career. And my wife, Teresa and I, uh, we run the company. It's a very small outfit. She does, she handles sales. I handle the content. And, uh, we make a living doing this. We, and, and we're very involved in the community or part of the chambers of commerce. And, you know, everybody knows this. And so it's, it's a lot of fun to do. You know, uh, Scott, when I started doing this podcast, I, uh, I finally decided on the name almost live, still alive because, uh, happily everybody for the most part that was ever a part of the show is still around, but you very nearly became the exception. Tell us about that. Well, in uh, May of 1996, I was due for my regular physical with my physician. And so uh, when I went to get checked, uh, he said, anything else bugging you? Everything seems fine. Uh, I said, well, I got this ringing in my right ear I've had for a couple of years. I think, you know, can you check my ear? And so he looked at it and said, well, your ear looks fine. The eardrum's good. There's, you know, no buildup of wax or anything. And I said, well, how can I get this really checked? He said, well, you can get an MRI. They'll do a brain scan. And my first thought was, you know, after working on Bill Nye for a couple of years, I thought, oh, MRI, that means I'll get these slides of my brain. I could maybe make a lampshade out of it. And so I got the MRI, and, you know, I thought, oh, this is going to be cool when I finally get the scans. What can I do? What kind of art can I create with these brain scans? And, of course, fast forward to uh, May of 96, like two weeks after getting the MRI, or maybe a week after my... I get a phone call at home on my landline, and that's my doctor, my physician. And he goes, Scott, I uh, just want to let you know that, you know, uh, your blood test came back okay, everything's good there, but uh, we found something, and it's that dreaded phone call you get. What do you mean you found something? Yeah, we found a tumor on the other side of your head. Your ear's okay. There's nothing there. Well, there was something there, the ear, but <laughs> on the other side of your brain, we think you have a tumor. And it's like, What? So I had no. I, I, ho- I hope he didn't deliver the news in that kind of a casual way. But no, he spoke like this. Actually, <laughs> this is the nurse. Oh, it's a female physician. Yeah. Yes, and, and so uh, anyway, so that was a t- the, the worst phone call of my life. I was oh, alone yeah. at the time. Uh, this is pre cell phone use for everybody, and so I, my wife didn't know till she came home from work, and so I thought I was going to die. And you know, everyone who gets a brain tumor usually dies, right? So in the movies, yeah. Yeah, and so my only experience was a family friend who had a brain tumor, and he passed away, I think, three months at least or sooner maybe after he was diagnosed. And so I just kind of thought I was going to die. And, it, you know, your your life kind of changes when you, when you come face-to-face with your mortality. And so after a while of feeling sorry for myself, that might have been a month or so, I, I decided that, you know, screw it, I'm not going to let this kill me. And so I learned to meditate. I went to these healing meditations and got on prayer lists and started changing my diet, uh, eating, you know, all organic food and uh, a lot of what they call superfoods, broccoli and brown rice and uh, cutting down on sugar and alcohol. 
And so I basically thought of it as training for a battle or a boxing match is kind of the metaphor I thought of. And so got the tumor, you know, went in for a craniotomy at the UW Medical Center. Dr. Mitch Berger removed my my benign stage two oleodendroglioma. And he did it in a, I think it was an eight or nine hour surgery that they woke me up in the middle of uh, to do what's called language mapping, where they probe around the tumor and they, well, they wake you up first and, and your, you know, your skull is exposed. And, and so they probe around the tumor to find out how it affects the area of mine was it near my Broca's area, the language area of the brain. And, and I told them, look, I'm a writer. I don't want to lose the ability to talk or think of words. So I need you to, you know, do a great job. And so they did this language mapping and I remember it very well. Uh, I think I'm going on. That was 20, that'll be 25 years ago this August that I had that removed. Oh, my and, word. Yeah. And so I survived, you know, and everybody, all my friends, you know, were suddenly really nice to me and they were wanting <laughs> to take me out for lunch and they thought they were saying goodbye, but they'd never say goodbye. And now <laughs> and you so, can't get lunch from anybody. Oh no. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like, screw you, Schaefer. You tricked us. Well, so, Scott, I'm glad at that news. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm really glad to know you. Thanks for, sharing uh, some stories about Almost Live and your time and your wonderful career. I would say, in a word, success. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. And same to you. I, I love you. I think you're one of the most talented, funniest, and most humble people. You've been a role model to me and I know to many others, including uh, an old intern who you're working with, Brian Shickley, who's doing a project yeah. that you're doing voices for. And so... You know, it's it's a pleasure to just be able to talk to you again. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language, and by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. <laughs>